If you would take your Bibles, please, this morning. If you do not have one, please avail yourself of some that are up the back so that you can follow along. We're going to turn, please, in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And if you'll find verse 12, we're going to read from verse 12 through to 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The Bible says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would, be the, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honourable, we bestow the greater honour, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, uh, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honour to the part that lacked it, that there be no division in the body but that members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffer, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. A fortnight ago, uh, we commenced our new series entitled Come Back to Church. We've spent a significant amount of time deconstructing the popular ideologies found in the world and subsequently in the church. And it was very clear from those 10 ideologies that we spoke of a couple of weeks ago and last Sunday night together in our evening service that the present concepts of church, the present ideas of church are for the most part divergent from that which is revealed in the word of God. We identified 10 ideologies. I'm going to quickly rattle them off to you because we're not going to go through them. But for those who might not be here, these were uh, those that may not have been there. uh, These were um, chronological ideologies, large ones that have uh, come through uh, the world and the church and still exist today in various forms. We have Gnosticism, Sacramentalism, Rationalism, Orthodoxism, Ecumenism, Humanism, Experientialism pragmatism, syncretism, and relativism. And that's just some of the isms that exist in the world and the church. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember that we spent some time going through that very carefully. We realized in that message, as we looked at the scriptures, that it is absolutely essential that we take our cues from the scriptures and not from the culture or the society. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12... Verses 12 through 27, we see four major truths here. There's many truths, but four major truths, which are in relationship to the church, which is the body of Christ. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first of these four truths, and that namely was that the local church is Christ's body. Now, we have many bodies, many local churches, but the local church is Christ's body. Today, Lord willing, we're going to consider two more, two more of the four which form an important basis of our understanding and for the remainder of the series that we're looking at. So I want you to join with me, if you would, as we consider the body concept part two. The body concept part two in the greater series, which is come back to church. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we make a start here. Heavenly Father, we realize that any time we open the word of God and seek to expound it, Uh, that we are in desperate need of the Spirit of God to govern and guide our our lips, our ears, our hearts. And so we pray that uh, we would be ever so sensitive uh, to what it is that he would be seeking to do within us. Uh, Help us to yield to the Spirit of God 
uh, as he would uh, point out specific areas to each of us uh, that we need to change in or that we need to grow in, uh, new truths that we may not have known before that we need to apply. Help us, we pray. Help me to communicate effectively the truths that have been studied uh, for the good uh, of this, our people, your people, uh, and Lord, for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, we read, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. First thing I want you to note this morning, which has a number of subpoints to it, is the unity in diversity through the spirit. Unity in diversity through the spirit. The Spirit may sound a little bit paradoxical, but it's not, uh, because we have incredible unity in diversity through the Spirit. One of the most wonderful truths that we read about in the New Covenant is the reality that God has brought together and unified a diverse group of people. You only have to look at one another this morning, and just if you just glance at the person next to you, we are diverse. We are diverse. And I see some husbands and wives looking at each other going, you are very diverse. (laughs) We are unified in the spirit of God. But before we look at that specifically, I need to uh, have us understand a truth that is largely misunderstood in the church today. And sub point number one is baptism with the spirit. In verse 13, we see here, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. It's very clear from this statement alone here that the unifying factor is the spirit of God. You need to understand that because it's not personality based. It's not interest based. We could look at this group of people here this morning and we could gather all of the interests and the recreational activities that we all enjoy. And we are going to be vastly diverse. So it's not about interests or ambitions or our personal agendas. It is the fact that there is baptism with the Spirit. Now we have to ask the question, what is meant by that? And this uh, is a a whole world uh, of teaching in this very concept that is, as I said, largely misunderstood. And it is essential Uh, Church, and I say this so often, it's essential for us to compare Scripture with Scripture and not seek to have our own opinion when we come to Scripture. We must consider Scripture with Scripture. So with that in mind, I want you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, just to help us. Galatians chapter 3, and if you find verse 26, I'm breaking uh, the first rule here of interpretation by not giving you all the context. You're going to have to look that up yourself in your own time because I've got much to get through. (laughs) I don't want to give you all the context in Galatians chapter uh, 3 because we're going to be here all day otherwise. Uh, But in Galatians chapter 3, we find that uh, the law was our guardian or schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, the old covenant. But then when we get to verse 26, please note, this is what it says, Galatians 3 verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. We should just pause and say, praise the Lord. We are sons of God. See what I mean by getting distracted so quickly by what's there? But verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male, female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So here's what we need to do at this point. Comparing scripture with scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we are told about the baptism with the spirit. In Galatians chapter 3, we are told about the baptism into Christ. They both have the same result. So we need to be very careful when we look at this theological truth. They are the same thing because they have the same result. And I want to show you uh, not only that, but when you turn to John chapter 1, if you would, John chapter 1, we read about John the baptizer. And he says quite a remarkable thing that is, again, largely misunderstood today. In John chapter 1, if you'd find verse 32, John chapter 1 and verse 32 The Bible says, and John, that's John the baptizer, bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove. By the way, it says like a dove there, not as a dove. 
Very important truth. All those pictures that have the Spirit of God pictured as a dove. Anyway, another day. And it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. If you would return, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, because we're going to need to be back there for the remainder of our time. There are many places we could go in the Scriptures... Uh, that point out the fact that baptism with the Spirit is the same thing as baptism by the Lord Jesus Christ or being baptized in Him. We could go to Romans chapter 6 and verse 4 that says that we were baptized into His death and then we were raised to new life just like the Lord Jesus was. We have many texts that we could look at. But it's very important that we understand baptism with the Spirit of God is the exact same thing as baptism into Christ. Now this becomes very important. We also see that baptism into the Spirit is done by Jesus Christ. He is the baptizer, John chapter 1 said. He will baptize you with the Spirit. You say, why is this so important? Why are you making such a point about this? Theologically, we must understand that the one who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit is Christ. And the reason we must understand that is because today on television, today on the radio... Today on internet videos, we see men today and women who go around telling people they have the power of baptizing men and women with the Holy Spirit. In fact, there is even ministries that are totally dedicated to the fact that if you will come to me, I will lay my hands upon you and I will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, most people take that from the book of Acts where that was a reality for a short portion of time during the transition between the old and the new covenant. But when we get to the book of Romans, we find that he who does not have the spirit of God is not the child of God. So for some to say that you must be baptized with Jesus Christ in that you must be immersed and saved and then at a later time the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens, that is falsehood. That is erroneous and that is not in the scripture. We must understand this because today we live in a culture, a church culture, where we have things called special unctions. Uh, Pentecostals would have us believe uh, that these unctions are when the Holy Spirit would come upon us in, in, a, in a great way so that we are somehow greater enabled, we have greater enabling for service and ministry. Um, that's not true. This is how it works. We are either walking in the Spirit or we're not. Either this morning as I preach the Word of God, I am either walking in the Spirit or I am walking in the flesh. They are the two positions within Christianity. There is no special unction for me this morning, except that I am to walk in the Spirit, to live a life yielded to the Spirit of God. We don't have special unctions. Now, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit doesn't use us in greater ways throughout our life. Not at all. But what we're not saying here is that we need to be somehow baptized into salvation and then later on have some kind of another baptism into the Spirit of God. In other words, baptism with the Spirit is the same thing as being born again, saved, regenerated and justified. All of those things are the same diamond just turned around with a different facet. Justification, being declared righteous, regeneration, all of those things are the same thing as well as baptism with the Spirit. Entrance into the family of God, that is the church, is through Christ. In our text... Entrance into the body is through one spirit. This is the very same event. Romans 8, 9 says, Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. To further develop this point this morning and to help you understand what I'm trying to say, we have indicatives and imperatives in the scriptures I've given us uh, the time, in, in time past. I've explained what those are. An imperative is the command, a command to do something. Walk in the Spirit. That's an imperative. Okay, we're told to do that. Interestingly, we have many, many commands and imperatives in the New Testament. We know that as a church. Never once, never once in the whole of the Scriptures are we commanded to be baptized with the Spirit. Never once. If we're not commanded to be baptized with the Spirit, then it is an automatic reality 
at the moment of our salvation. Otherwise, the Spirit of God would have included in the inspiration of Scripture the fact that you must regularly be baptized in the Spirit. There is no command. It is an automatic reality at the time of your conversion. It's accomplished at salvation. To say, and this is, this is on the flip side, this is really important truth here this morning, to say that we need some kind of separate unction, some kind of separate anointing, some kind of separate baptism into the Spirit is to attack a core doctrine of the Gospel, namely found in Colossians 2.10. The Bible says that we are complete in Christ. You are complete in Him. If we have something left over, then we cannot be complete in Him. The total sufficiency is in Christ at the moment of salvation. You say, but yeah, we haven't reached the fullness. No, we haven't reached the fullness, but it's all ours. Everything that relates to our spiritual life is given to us at the moment of salvation and we walk in it and we grow in our sanctification. All things that pertain to life and godliness are given to us. So we need to understand that we are complete in Christ. The moment that you are saved, you are complete in Him. If you are not then we have an incomplete salvation. We don't have any hope. We don't have anything, in fact, if we are not complete in that moment of conversion, of justification. You say, why is this such an important hot topic? Because, church, when you read different individuals, well-meaning leaders, and even people who I refer to from the pulpit from time to time, we need to be careful. Some have been deceived in this area. We love to sing uh, songs and, and read poems by Charles and John Wesley. I love those men. But they had the incorrect doctrine as it relates to this. They believed in a separate unction. Charles Finney, R.A. Torrey, Andrew Murray, Watchman Nee, and others all taught about a second baptism in the Spirit of God. And it's important that we understand that it's, we have it all. It's all done. It's all done. And we appreciate the life and work of these men, and many of them have some wonderful things to say. But we must filter our truth and understanding of it through the pages of Scripture, not through men that we appreciate. I hope and pray that what I preach on a Sunday, you take notes and you go home and you check it like the Bereans did and make sure that these things are so. Because we want to be true to the Word, don't we? We want to be true to God's Word, not to man's Word. And so it is essential that we understand this matter of baptism with the Spirit. It is the exact same thing as being baptized into Christ, salvation. That's the first sub-point. The second thing I want you to see here in verse number 13. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Notice what it says next. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one Spirit. So now we know the diversities. I love the fact that God has designed a diverse church. I'm so glad you're not all like me. I'm so glad I'm not like you. I'm so glad that God has made it so. We read here in this particular text of two diversities, ethnic and societal. We have the Jews and the Greeks. We have the slaves and the free. Again, when we compare Scripture with Scripture, though, we find that there are some more diversities in the church of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 3.11, Paul writes this, There is no Greek, no Jew circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In fact, one commentator I read said, maybe the Lord had it a little bit out of, uh, out of whack. There seems to be a whole lot more barbarians today. And we know what he was saying. It was a joke. In Galatians 3.28, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is an exciting truth, a unifying truth. We have so many nationalities, we have so many uh, different social economic situations, even here in this, our local church, but we have all been made to drink from the one spirit. We have unity in diversity. What is the unifying factor? It is to be in Christ. It is to be the very same thing, baptized with the Spirit of God. It was always God's plan to unify diverse people through His Son. Let me tell you what a great church looks like from the Scriptures. It should have ethnic diversity. I think we have that, which I'm excited by. Social diversity. 
economic diversity, gender diversity, age diversity, gifting diversity, personality diversity. There should be those who are single. There should be those who are married. There should be those who have children. There should be those who are widows and widowers. This was all part of God's plan to unify a group of people in Christ. There's lots of unifying things in the world today, but nothing is more unifying than the Spirit of God that reigns supreme in the life of Christians that come together to worship like this. That is an incredible thought. Now, I want to be careful. I want to issue a warning here as well because some people go too far with this concept. They jump to unscriptural conclusions as it relates to this matter of unity. Some say, well, because Paul said there's neither male nor female, that there's no specific roles in the church for gender anymore, that the Lord abolished all of that when the Spirit of God uh, came to dwell within the believers and they no longer apply. May I say that's faulty hermeneutic. It's faulty interpretation. There is a great distinction in the word of God when we get to Timothy and his whole premise is about how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to tell us there are certain things that men ought to do. There are certain things that women ought to do. But we are all unified in Christ. Diversity of role, not inequality. Diversity of role. So we need to be very careful that we do not apply a faulty interpretation when it comes to this matter of unity. I do want to make a comment as well. Uh, I have noted over the years, not often but sometimes, that Christians can become racial and discriminating. That ought never to be amongst us. We ought never to live or operate in a realm of being racially prejudiced or discriminatory. In fact, this whole passage is about the fact that we don't do that. We, we have no right to do that because you may have, you may have a greater sense of uh, wealth. God may have blessed you uh, to be able to have wealth. This person over here may have uh, a great personality, an outward personality and so forth. None of those things are to be respecting of persons. James chapter 2 tells us that. If someone comes into the assembly and he's wearing a gold ring and we say to him, hey listen, you come sit here in this comfortable chair and a poor beggar comes in, both say both brethren and we say hey listen you come sit at my footstool that should never be named once amongst us the bible says so when we come to this matter of unification it's not based on externalisms it's based upon the holy spirit of god who dwells within the believer and so we need to understand that color of skin socioeconomic status um, materialism all of those other things none of those are to be what creates unification but the Spirit of God. It's essential we understand that. And we're told in James chapter 2 that I, I quoted for us that it was God who chose the poor of this world to be heirs of the kingdom. That excites me. Our God is not interested in the external. He is interested in a changed heart and a changed life and in his sovereign election, he chose poor in this world. He didn't look out and say, well, there's a rich person, there's this person, let's have them. It's got nothing to do with that. It's got to do with his sovereign choice. And in his sovereign choice, we find that he chose the poor of this world to make them heirs of the kingdom. Wonderful truth. Point number two this morning, main point number two. And we see in verses 14 through 17 this truth. The essential role of each individual member the essential role verses 14 to 17 let me just remind you what that says for the body does not consist of one member but of many if the foot should say because i'm not a hand i do not belong to the body that would not make it any less part of the body and if the ear should say because i'm not an eye i do not belong to the body that would not make it any less part of the body if the whole body were an eye where would be the sense of hearing if the whole body were an ear where would be the sense of smell. Paul explains that there are no islands in the church, nor are there dispensable parts in the local church. So I want to give you three sub-points before we finish this morning that are absolutely crucial, we understand. Whether you're a visitor and you have a home church, or whether you are a regular here and you're a part of this assembly, these truths are absolutely essential, critical for us to understand. The first thing I want you to note, members of the body are mutually dependent. 
Members of the body are mutually dependent. Here's what I mean. Every single aspect of the local body has a part to play and belongs to the whole. Now, the tendency of an immature Christian or member of the body is to make comparison. Well, I'm not a hand. I'm not an eye. I'm not part of the the face features. I'm not part of the better parts of the assembly. So I don't really have a point. That's why Paul said what he said here. You think, well, I'm not the hand, therefore I'm not this, I'm not the eye, I'm not the ear, therefore I don't have a part to play here. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul was contending with the church in Corinth here. There are no dispensable parts to the body. We cannot do without any of them. Romans 12.5 says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. In fact, I'm encouraged when I read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 to 16. Please listen carefully to this again about the church. Ephesians 4, 15 to 16, Paul says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here's the truth of this matter. If we fail as a local church, each member working together, we are going to slow our growth down collectively. See, it's not just about me. It's not just about you. We are interconnected and mutually dependent so that when every part is working properly, the body will grow and build itself up in love. Some of you have experienced great hardship in church life in the past. And it's when we become independent of one another that the church implodes. It's when we say, well, I'm okay, I'm fine, I'm going to put on this pharisaical look, I'm going to put on this facade, everything's perfectly fine, and we come and we just mingle together and we assemble and we don't have any real depth or transparency or truth with one another, and slowly we begin to have this implosion take place because we're not really mutually dependent, we're independent. We've got to remember what the church is. The church is the called out, redeemed ones who are brother and sister in Christ. We are children of God. We are interconnected in that. In fact, may I go so far as to say that we are closer spiritually than our physical family. If you have the blessing of having Christian family, physical family, then that's wonderful. If you don't, you understand how wonderful it is to have brethren in the spiritual realm. It's a wonderful thing. God designed it that way. You know why? Because Jesus said, unless you hate your mother and father and brother and sister and so forth, you can't be my disciple. Now, what he meant by that is not that we would hate one another, but that our love for Jesus Christ would be so disproportionate to everything else that everything else appears to be like we don't love one another. He also said later on that you are going to experience persecution. Father and mother are going to bring you forward and they're going to have you executed. Physical family, non-spiritual. And so God designed the church to be a place where we come together for mutual encouragement and building up in the faith so that we can wage warfare together for the cause of Jesus Christ. Because friend and family potentially will forsake us. The Bible says when my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me up. And we find in the scriptures that we are mutually dependent. The Spirit of God has brought us together in order to depend And when we invert God's order, we invoke disaster. When we invert God's order for the church, we invoke disaster. As always, pride is ultimately the downfall of any local church. Because we no longer need God, we no longer need one another, we are trying to do it on our own. However, the joy is this. When we recognize our dependence on God supremely and we depend on one another, we will function cohesively for the glory of God. Verses 21 to 24. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor 
and our presentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honour honor to the part that lacked. There's three things noted here in this text. Three aspects of the body which are often undervalued but are essential to the whole. He says weaker parts, verse 22. He says less honourable parts, verse 23. And unpresentable parts in verse 23 as well. What does he mean? By weaker parts, Paul is referring to the fragile, the delicate, those that may be prone to problems. Some suggest that Paul had in mind the brain or the eye in the body because it is an essential part but so fragile. The slightest slip of the surgeon's hand when we get to brain surgery can literally destroy a life, can it not? The slightest slip of the surgeon's hand when they deal with the eye can result in permanent blindness. They are fragile parts and yet they are essential to the functionality of the whole. Perhaps that's what he refers to. But certainly the weaker parts, when you translate that word, it speaks of fragile, hurting, prone to problems. In our assembly, there may be those, there are those who are more fragile than others. And so the scripture tells us that those weaker parts are indispensable. If you look at yourself and you say, well, I'm just not as strong as others. You can rejoice in this. You are an indispensable part of the body. The second one is the less honorable parts. The interpretation here is generally considered to mean those that seem to carry little or less of value. Again, remember the word seem. They seem to. doesn't mean they do. It just appears that way. And uh, some would suggest that might refer to perhaps the back or the belly or the feet. Some aspect of the body that is not considered of as great a value as the face or the countenance of the individual. But you know what the Bible says here? These aspects of the body, we bestow the greater honour. Interestingly, this is a Greek play on words. It means we put on that part of the body great honourable clothing. We glorify that part of the body is what it literally means. So those parts that seem to be without great honour or value, they're the ones that we focus our attention on and ensure that we can build them up and we can clothe them and clad them with honour and ornamentation. Again, the third part, the unpresentable parts. Here he speaks of those parts that have no natural beauty, the secret parts of the human body. And the idea here is that we would cover and provide ornamentation to preserve decency and modesty. And there's a wide view on what this might refer to in the local church. Um, Some would say that it refers to perhaps the poorer individuals in our midst that uh, do not have sufficient uh, by way of finances. Others would say those who are not presently walking with the Lord but are still part of a local assembly and they are uh, unpresentable at this point and we're going to seek to help them. Whatever the case... The unpresentable parts are to be protected from unjust criticism and ridicule from other parts of the body. That's the summary. The point is simply this. Every single individual, every single member is an essential, indispensable part of the local church. Before we move on to uh, the next sub-point... I want to make sure we get this understanding of being mutually dependent. What does it mean practically? It's all well and good for me to, uh, to tell you, you know, this is, what it, this is what the Greek word means and this is the interpretation. But what does it mean practically now? Let's, let's, the rubber hits the road here. Well, let me just give you a few thoughts here. To be mutually dependent is to operate with honesty and transparency with one another. Here's what I mean. No facades. No hypocrisy. No concealing our faults and flaws. In fact, going to the other extreme where we confess our faults one to another like James tells us to do. 
Not trying to be something that we're not. Try not trying to be a superhero. I watched a really, I'm going to find it soon. I'm going to show it to us. I watched a really good video online the other day. Uh, it, was a, it was a dramatized uh, Christian video, just a short two or three minute snippet of the perfect Christian family. And it was, it was uh, hilarious. It had me almost in tears. It pictured this family getting ready for their church service on the Sunday. And I think there were three or four kids in it and there was a, a mum and a dad. And uh, so as you can imagine, in, in a young household, there's, there's kids running everywhere and the parents are trying to get them all together. Some of the parents out there are going, yeah, yeah, I fully appreciate what you're saying. Um, and, uh, and it was just a disaster zone at home. And mum and dad are trying to get them all ready and brush hair and, and get the girls in dresses and boys in their, you know, in their clothes and so on. And nothing's working. And, and this person over here pours porridge on them. And this person over here you know, pours orange juice on the sister. And it's just not working. And they're probably up at six o'clock in the morning to get them ready because it takes three or four hours to get them right. Okay, some of you understand that picture, right? So this was the picture. And it kept having a, a flashback or a, not a flashback, it was a forward moment to going into the church building and they had all these lights on and these people were strutting in and they all looked perfect so like they looked perfect the, the lady's face was radiant it was just and and the, and the gentleman was walking in and it's just it was quite an interesting video and then what it did at the end is it showed them really how they looked and what had happened in the car is the guy was shaving and as he was shaving in the car he accidentally cut a piece off his hair up here and 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 the wife's hair was everywhere and there's a rip in her skirt and the kids And at the end of it, it was such a powerful video because at the end of it, it said something to the fact, there are no perfect families, stop putting up a pretense. And that's such an important thing for us to understand that when we come in, we're not all about how we look, are we? We're not all about that we would have some form of God. Let's be us. Let's be church. Let's, when we get together in cell groups, be honest with one another and say, you know what, how are you? I've had a rotten week. It's been really hard and I'm struggling this week. Would someone please pray with me? Would someone share with me? I need some Bible passages for this. Let's not talk about the footy. Let's not talk about all these other things that really don't matter. Let's have church in reality. See, the problem is we have an identity crisis today. We have this idea that churches, we just get together on a Sunday. I want to, the next person who says that to me, I think I'm almost going to hit them because church is not Sunday. Church is our identity in Jesus Christ. When you walk down the street and you find someone else who's a part of your local body, they are connected with you intrinsically by the Spirit of God. This is the closest person to me in all the world by way of unity, apart from perhaps your spouse. That's who it is. And so I'm willing to lay down my life for that individual. That's how close this is. That's the kind of love that exists. We need to get away from this idea of this lack of truth, this lack of transparency. This is not a country club. Church is not a building. It's a called out people, connected, because we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that was just point one. We look to encourage one another. We're actually going out of our way to encourage one another. That's the point. We come together today. We're gonna, I'm going to look out for an opportunity to bless and encourage someone. Come with that mentality. Don't come with the idea, well, here we go to church again. No, you don't go to church. You are the church. You don't go to church. This is a church service, but we don't go to church. We are that. And so I want to be able to pray in the morning before I come to a public setting where the church meets. Say, Lord, how? How can I be a blessing to someone? How can I build up someone else's faith? Uh, Lead me to passages of Scripture that would be a help to them in their time of need. We look to encourage and build one another up. We pay special attention to the weaker, fragile and seemingly dispensable parts to ensure that we give honour, respect and encouragement. Um, You know what I love? And I hope none of the senior citizens are offended by this. I love the fact that we have some people with walking sticks. I love the fact that we have people with frames. I love the fact that we one day will have people with wheelchairs, I hope. And I hope we have to line them all up out the front and have little parkings. I love that idea because you know what? When we are physically weak, it is a privilege for others to be a blessing. Because when we are so strong and, and everything seems to be okay, we sort of, you know, we sort of say, hey, look, I'm all right. You don't have to worry about me. I'm fine. But it would do us all good if every one of us was in a wheelchair for a week so that we could actually learn what it is to be a blessing to one and receive the blessing. I love that the weaker parts are often physical so that we can minister to them. We want to look for those opportunities. Uh, Hebrews 10 tells us we need to stir one another up to love and good works. Matthew 18 and Romans 15 says we need to rebuke and instruct one another. Uh, One thing that people don't like to talk about in this 
lovey-dovey church mentality that exists today is that where there is real love, there's never rebuke. That is not Bible. That's wrong. Love rejoices in the truth. Love seeks that person to grow in the spirit of God and to grow in the word of God so that when there is a prevailing sin in that person's life, a besetting sin, someone comes along and says, hey, brother, sister, I can see you're struggling in this area. How can I help? Now, here's what normally happens. Did you see what she did? Did you hear what he did? Can you believe it? And we get into our little cliques and we talk about it and nobody's actually reaching out to the broken vessel over here that's working through the sin and... That's not church. Church actually goes to that person. If you're a spiritual person, says, I want to restore you. I want to help. I want to mend that bone that's broken. That's what it means in Galatians chapter 6. I'm going to reach out. I'm going to try and restore that if I can. And if I'm not the right person, if I'm not spiritual, if I don't have the the right understanding of the word of God sufficiently, I'm going to get someone else to come and help. That's what we do. We are looking out. The church is not the place where we shoot our wounded. And yet, today... That's what it seems like. So we rebuke and we instruct one another. We counsel one another. We build one another up. We seek to restore a fallen comrade. You know, over the last weeks and months, there has been many situations in and around my uh, sphere of influence where there has been great turmoil, turbulence in the life of people that I love and care about. And I have watched some of them in other churches be completely closed off and shut out and judgmentalized from that assembly. That makes me angrier than just about anything else in the world. Because Galatians 6.1 says, restore such an one. Look for an opportunity. Now, the Bible talks about discipline. There's no question about that. And that has a purpose. And you know the purpose of discipline? Restoration. The purpose of discipline isn't to get them out so they're gone because they're a problem. The purpose is, well, we've tried, we have sought to help you and you will not. So perhaps in this discipline situation, this will cause you to repent and come back to us. And when you do, we will be waiting on the balconies with open arms to rejoice at your return. That's what church is. We've got to seek to restore a fallen comrade. And that goes right in line with Philippians 2.3 that says we count others more significant than ourselves. See, you know what the Lord Jesus did is he turned love on its head. See, he said, you've heard it said, you know, uh, an eye for an eye and a a tooth for a tooth. Almost said an ear for an ear, but I'm pretty sure that's not in there. Tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye. You've heard it said, but now I say to you, he says, a new commandment I give you, love your enemies, bless them. He He just turned this to an impossibility outside of the Spirit of God. See, you cannot love your enemy. You cannot lay down your life for the brethren unless the Spirit of God is within you because it's only the love of God shed abroad in your hearts that can make that a possibility. That's the only way. And so even if you look at your own life this morning and you say, you know what, I don't think I have that love, then you may well not be in Christ because that's only possible in the Spirit of God, to love like that. Here's a statement for you this morning. Only when God's people are mutually dependent and make a consolidated effort to stand unified will we put to flight the armies of darkness and make an impact on this world. That's the only way that we will make an impact and that's the only way that we will stand sure and firm is when we are consolidated in the truth, unified in the spirit, walking together, seeking to help up those who are, who are wounded, seeking to restore, seeking to be a blessing. Only when our focus is off us, on Christ first and then on others, will this operate. It will not operate any other way. We are destined to fail if we don't do this actively. Because the passive approach will end up in implosion internally. Because our natural flesh will take control. We will become independent. So we must actively put this on every single day of our life as we consider our role as part of God's church. We are mutually dependent. I'm just going to give you one more. There's more here, but I'm just going to give you one more before we finish. Because there's too much. The second, is that what we're up to? Second sub-point? I want you to note the sovereign appointment of each member. This is a really, really important truth that, to be honest, I never really saw. I think I knew it, but I never really saw it in this text. 1 Corinthians 12, 18, look at what it says. But as it is, 
God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. You know what that means? If you are a regular with us, you are not here by accident. In fact, you here today, you are not here by accident. But you in general, as part of our local assembly, you are not here by accident. You didn't really choose to be here. You did. But in actual fact, it was part of God's sovereign will. It is God who sovereignly resides over the affairs of men. And he appoints the members of the individual bodies. One thing that really bothers me today, oh, there's a few things, isn't there? I've said about five times things that bother me. One thing that really bothers me today is that people change churches like they change outfits. I've never understood that. I have never seen that. In fact, there's an illustration of this. I've shared it with you before. story is told of a Christian who was marooned on an island. When he was finally found, the rescue party noticed that he had built three buildings. When questioned about it, the Christian pointed to the first building and said, This is my house. And the rescuers replied, well, that's fair enough. Everybody should have a house. Then he pointed to the second building and said, that is my church. Again, the sailors said, well, that's good. Everybody ought to have a church. Then they asked, what's the third building? The maroon Christian alone on the island replied, that's the church I used to attend. (laughs) Now, at the heart of that ridiculous illustration is a fundamental flaw. And I hope you've got it. The church is not a building. It's a people. But it does point out something. Even left to our own devices. Even if we're the only one, we're going to have problems in the church, are we not? Because it's us. We have problems. If you find a perfect church, don't join because you'll wreck it. One of the reasons why we change churches so rapidly, I am convinced of this, is that we do not understand what a local body really is. Here's the big truth to consider as we draw to a close. The word arranged in the text, please look at it there. Arranged. Verse 18. God arranged. When you take that original Greek word and you compare it with other places in the scripture, this is what you find. That same word is used for God's sovereign election of believers to salvation. And we've talked about that a whole lot lately. God sovereignly in his own infinite will chose to redeem you if you are one of his. That sovereign election is exactly the same word used in this text. Furthermore, Paul's appointment to the office of the apostle. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 1.11 that that was by appointment. Same word. If you say, well, that's still not sufficient. How about this one? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, God's appointment of the Son to be heir of all things. Same word used. And then Jesus' selection of the 12 apostles in John 15, 16. Sovereign selection, appointment, organized by God. This, I believe, gives us an indication of just how serious a matter being a part of local church is. And how every member has been appointed to a local church. Now I want to pause for a moment because some would at this point say, well, therefore you must remain in the same local church for the rest of your life, despite the change of leadership, despite erroneous doctrine. You've been called there, so you need to stay there. That is not what I'm saying at all. If there is erroneous doctrine, if there is faulty leadership, if there is not direction that is spiritual and biblical, then yes, you need to leave. And that's God's sovereign appointment for you to leave. Because he's put that in his word. But, I will say this, your choice of a local assembly is therefore critical. The thing that bothers me today is people come to me and they say, well, you know, God has been so good, he's given me a promotion at work and he's moving me to the outback, for example. And uh, I'm going to be working in the outback. There's no church, you know, there's no local assembly there that I can connect with, but I'm sure it'll all work out okay. I can tell you straight away, that is never God's will. Unless, unless God's will is that you start one. It's never God's will for you to be outside of a local assembly that is a Bible teaching, Christ exalting assembly. It's never God's will. You don't have to wonder, should I take that promotion at work and go to that place? I don't believe God's called me to start a local assembly, but there's nothing there. I've surveyed the area, but God's given me this. No, he hasn't. 
Because God's first priority, apart from you seeking him, is that you would be with a local assembly of like-minded, godly, Bible-preaching, Christ-exalting believers. That's God's design. And so I can't understand how people would look at things like that and say, well, we're going to give this a shot. And then five years down the track, it's no wonder that their lives are nothing like what they're supposed to be. There's this problems in the marriage. There's problems in the kids. They haven't had any teaching in the word. It's no wonder. And so I want to remind you the critical role of being a part of a local assembly. And if you were a visitor here this morning, find a Bible-believing, Christ-exalting church with a godly leadership that wants you to learn who he is without erroneous doctrine. See, church is not something that you add to your life. It is your family. It's your family. There is so much that could be said, and and we'll close at this point. But I want us to understand more than anything how God sees church. We don't want man's perspective. You look at society, you look at culture, you're going to have completely the wrong idea of church. And you're going to find all of those ten erroneous ideologies that have existed all form part of decision making when it comes to church. Let's be biblical. Let's come back to church. Let's have the body concept that God designed, mutual dependence upon one another. It is so, so important. Next week, Lord willing, we'll consider that final sub-point, which is that the body must not be divided. The body must not be divided. And we'll consider that some more. I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to break off into our cell groups. I think question number three, leaders, is going to be irrelevant now because we haven't covered it. But let's look at question number one and two. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for a time uh, in your word this morning. Thank you for the church, the body of Christ. Thank you for the local church, the local assembly that you have uh, ordained and appointed, that you have selected uh, men uh, in leadership for Uh, and that you have brought members together, uh, that you would be glorified in the midst of that assembly. Uh, Lord, help us to lose this idea of it being a building or a club. Uh, Help us to lose the idea of uh, all those different ideologies that have crept in. Help us to be biblical and scriptural as as to our understanding of what the church really is, and that we would operate with mutual dependence, first and foremost upon you, total dependence, utter dependence, but mutual dependence on one another. Help us to uh, be honest and confess our sin one to another, recognize we are faulty and fragile and failing, and then help us, Lord, to uh, be able to uh, dress one another in honor and ornamentation. Uh, Lord, the weaker parts, the unpresentable parts, help us to live by that which we've learned today. Thank you that we have uh, the perfect leader, Christ, the head of the church. Help us to look to him. And as we look to him, that we would grow in one degree of glory to another, as so by the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name, amen.